Welcome to Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you to serve God and your neighbor. If you want to learn more about our ministry, head over to mapc.com. If you're looking for a community where you can deepen your faith, we invite you to join us every Sunday at 1030 online or in person. I have suggested to you before that love of God and love of neighbor are the twin rails that carry the locomotive of faith. And this morning we will explore the nature of that love and perhaps even its challenge and discomfort. Our New Testament reading comes to us from 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 13, and I ask you to help me in the reading. Your part is the word love. Listen once again to the word of God. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have all prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, And if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have, I gain nothing. Is patient. Is kind. It's not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things hopes all things, endures all things, never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part, but when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part. Then I will fully know, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and Abide these three, but the greatest of these is, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. About a year after I was ordained, I conducted my first wedding. It was a young couple, uh, late teens, early 20s. I don't recall how they contacted me. They were not members of the congregation, but they came to my office one afternoon and we sat down to get to know one another. Where are you from? What kind of work do you do? How did you meet? And then suddenly the groom, with his eyes ablaze with excitement, said, Patrick, I really want my first wedding to go well. (laughs) The bride looked over at him and said, First? The conversation didn't go well after that. It went kind of downhill. 
in meeting with pastors and planning weddings, many subjects come up, many things need to be organized and arranged. And one of these, of course, is the biblical reading for the service. Often, quite often, a couple will select the words we heard this morning, 1 Corinthians 13. It is a beautiful hymn, and its words can, can shine light on romantic love. But 1 Corinthians 13 is not about romance. As a matter of fact, did you know that before the early 18th century, it would have been unconscionable for a couple to get married because of something as whimsical and unreliable as love. Marrying for love is a radical and modern development in the history of marriage. Too much was at stake to trust a young couple to decide whom to marry. Stephanie Kuss's book on marriage is incredibly insightful, and if you haven't read it, I heartily recommend it to you. The purpose of marriage up until the early 18th century was social, economic, and political stability. If a couple grew to love one another after they got married, great, but it wasn't necessarily expected. Love was not the primary motivator for marriage, nor was marriage expected to fill all that couple's needs for intimacy and companionship. So when we turn to 1 Corinthians 13, please, Remove from your mind those images of the tuxedos and the wedding dresses. This is not all about love as we typically understand it. And if we listen very, very closely, we might just discover that Christian love is a very normal thing to do. Paul, as you might recall, is writing to a bunch of divided and conflicted believers. They have trouble getting along with one another. They fuss and they fight. They argue over who had been the best pastor in their history. They have a tendency to look down on others who do not share their spiritual gifts. Some hail their own gifts as being superior to the gifts of others. And so in chapter 12, Paul affirms that all spiritual gifts come from God, and he tells them that they, that they are indeed the body of Christ, that they represent God on earth, and that they need one another. At the end of chapter 12, he says, I will show you a still more excellent way. That way, of course, concerns love. By the way, where do we Christians get our understanding of love from media, from the movies, from our experience of our family and friends? Mm, no, of course not. When it comes to love, what is decisive for us as Christians is what God has done and is doing through Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 8, God proves his love for us that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. John 3, 16, we all know these words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Said simply, love does not define God. 
God defines love. And we see what love genuinely is and what God has done and is doing in the life of Jesus. To channel Forrest Gump's mother, uh, love is as love does. Love is not an emotion. Christian love is not a feeling. It is not about sentimentality. It's not about warm fuzzies in our heart. Simply put, Christian love is respect. Love is the affirmation of the inherent dignity and immeasurable value of another human being. So when we call Butterfields and we order a dinner for a family who is grieving, that is love. When we rejoice together in the birth of a child, or a promotion at work, or a successful operation, that kind of regard for one another, that kind of respect, that is love. When we lean on one another as we care for aging relatives, that is love. When we treat one another with care and compassion and can get away from the a pervasive model of church today is just a business and we regard one another as subjects and not just objects in our quest to achieve a certain end, that is love. Love is as love does. Love is enfleshed in the countless specific and concrete ways that we reach out to care for one another. But there's more. Back in chapter 12, when Paul was writing about gifts, before he got to the supreme gift of love, he says, no one says that Jesus is Lord except through the Holy Spirit. Um, do you think the Corinthians shuddered when they heard these words read aloud in their worship service. No one says Jesus is Lord except through the Holy Spirit. And I imagine that if we had been sitting there in that congregation in Corinth and we heard Paul say that, we would have wanted to respond, no! Don't say that! Certainly don't say that out loud. The citizens of the Roman Empire could never speak such words with comfort or ease. Instead, do you know what they would say, those in the Roman Empire? <clears throat> the phrase was, Caesar is Lord. In their context, <clears throat> Jesus is Lord is a political pledge of allegiance. It is a social and economic landmine it is treason. Paul throws out this grenade in the middle of this nice, comfortable worship service and says, Jesus is Lord. And then he goes into a discussion of love. What? 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 Jesus is Lord is the earliest of all Christian creeds, and in the end, it is the most important. 
It acknowledges that Jesus is Lord over our life. Jesus and not Caesar. Jesus and not the nation state. Jesus and not my political affiliation. Jesus and not my family, not my money, not my popularity, not my career. Jesus and Jesus alone is the Lord over our life. Not just the life we share in here, but more importantly, the life we share and live out there. Many of you know that religion serves to homogenize and regulate society to reinforce the prevailing mores and attitudes. For example, while a form of the Apostles' Creed was developed in the second century, it did not achieve popularity until the ninth century. Do any of you know why? Because when the emperor Constantine was crowned, he wanted to unite the empire. Charlemagne, thank you, Kathy. Kathy just gave me this look like, do what? When Charlemagne was crowned as emperor in the ninth century, he sent out word, use the Apostles' Creed, because he wanted everyone to believe the same thing, to get on the same page. Religion serves to homogenize and regulate society, to reinforce prevailing mores and attitudes. This is why to this day, the Apostles' Creed is the most popular of Christian creeds in the Western Church, but it is unheard of in the Eastern Church. In my first congregation, for example, we had this wonderful couple from Russia. They fled at the end of the war. Walter had been conscripted into the Russian army, held prisoner by the Nazis, escaped, conscripted back into the Russian army, back and forth he went, and then they settled in this rural area of South Carolina. And in that congregation, we recited the Apostles' Creed every Sunday. And they would stand up and wouldn't say a word. Why? It was unknown to them. It's known to us in the West because Charlemagne insisted upon it. Something very, very similar happened with the Nicene Creed. Who convened the Nicene Council? Kathy? Constantine. Constantine had come to power and to build cohesion in the empire. He heard about these churches rumbling and grumbling. Is it homo usios or homoi usios? Is Jesus the same as God or similar to God? We can't have these Christians arguing. Now you get together and figure it out. And so today we have the Nicene Creed. It was used to unify and bring cohesion to the empire under Constantine. I can't emphasize it enough. Religion often serves to homogenize and regulate society to reinforce prevailing mores and attitudes. That is why when so many preachers you might hear getting up and banging on the pulpit and saying, let's get back to traditional mores and attitudes. Let's get back to the way things were. They're not talking about scripture. They're talking about the way things simply were when they were growing up. In Christianity, however, even though religion has this social anthropological function, within Christianity there is this powerful, subversive element. We are bold enough to say Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, not Constantine, not Charlemagne, 
not the Republican Party, not the Democratic Party, not the almighty dollar. Jesus is Lord and no other. <laughs> I am always puzzled and somewhat confused when I hear Christians say that the church doesn't have any business out in the world messing around with politics. Uh, my ancestors, by the way, were very, very good at saying that in the South because they did not want to grapple with what Scripture was really saying about slavery. And so if we can keep spirituality in here and it doesn't really make a difference out there, oh, that's good. Uh, and so sometimes when you hear Christians saying, oh, uh, mm, churches shouldn't have anything to do with politics. No, 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 that's, that's just too divisive. Uh, you, you think about the 19th century Confederacy. It worked. The only way we can say that we should not get involved in politics is to completely ignore Scripture. To ignore it, as I have noted before. Some of you are wondering, what's this got to do with love? Hang in there. We're getting there, I promise you. Fasten your seatbelts, we're on the way. The, as I shared with you before, when Moses, the pivotal figure in the Old Testament, when Moses went down to Egypt to liberate God's people from economic, political, physical bondage, to liberate them from oppression, Moses did not go down to Egypt and say, where's your priest? Uh, uh, I want to pray with him. Where did Moses go? Moses went to the center of power and government. Moses went to Pharaoh. And Moses said, let my people go. And the central figure of the New Testament, indeed the figure of our faith, Jesus the Christ, was executed by the Roman Empire for sedition. For 2,000 years, Christians have found ways to ignore this and to forget this. Crucifixion was a particularly sadistic form of punishment that was reserved for those who committed treason. We read in some translations of the Bible that Jesus was crucified between two thieves, and we might say, oh gosh, uh, they stole some matzah. Uh, no, that's a horrible translation. Jesus was crucified between two bandits, that is, two terrorists, two freedom fighters, two zealots, enemies of the empire who were willing to kill to overcome Rome. Jesus would not do that. Jesus would not kill. Jesus, well, Jesus was guided by many things, but certainly that included love of God and love of neighbor. The issue, my friends, is not whether the church should engage in political, economic, and the social realities of our time. The question is how. The question is not whether we should talk about, address, engage issues of health care, discrimination, redlining, and just use of wealth the military-industrial complex, the question is how we do it, and the how has to do with love.
Unlike some people I know, everybody look at Beverly. Unlike some people I know, I have never been to France. And uh, when I go, I certainly have no intention of walking across France. I assure you, I will fall many, many more times than she ever did. But should I ever go, I want to get Ronald Field to go with me so that he can translate. And more than anything else, I want to go to the village of La Chambon. Have any of you ever heard of this tiny village 350 mi miles south of Paris, La Chambon? Do you know it? The townspeople are the subject of a masterful documentary by Pierre Sauvage. It's called Weapons of the Spirit. And it begins with this simple acknowledgement by Sauvage, I am a Jew, born in Nazi-occupied France. At that time, a spiritual plague was still sweeping through the Western world. It produced the Holocaust, the Holocaust that mutilated my family, burned my roots, and wiped out one-third of my people. The year was 1940, and within the span of a few short weeks, Germany had invaded France, conquered it, and divided it. Germany controlled the north. Marshal Pétain governed the south. The capital was located in Vichy. That was not to last, however. Paris had become renowned for its acceptance and inclusivity and engagement of all kinds of people, all kinds of people. But once the Nazis took over, all that changed. During the occupation, the Jews were no longer safe. And even in Vichy, France, there was strong collusion with the Nazis. And within months, within months, laws were passed that severely restricted the rights of Jews to hold office or seek an education or earn a living or travel. In 1941, the Nazis began rounding up the Jews in broad daylight by the French police. There was, according to Savage, considerable public support for these policies. He notes that local officials collaborated with the Nazis, whereas in other European countries, the Nazis used their own henchmen to do their bidding. But then there was La Chambon, a community populated by Huguenots, that is, populated by French Presbyterians. Throughout their history, they had endured harsh persecution, and they were accustomed. They knew all about perseverance. It began with a few Jews who had fled to their village, and the peasants there, it was a very poor village, the peasants there took these Jews in and kept caring for these individuals, for these couples, for these families, for people of all ages, for people who could pay, for people who could not pay. Merchants, doctors, and intellectuals from Paris, Warsaw, Vienna, and Prague converged on that tiny hamlet. Over four long years, 5,000 Christians in La Chambon hid 5,000 Jews. One survivor recalled what was remarkable about La Chambon is that nobody during four or five years asked me the question, are you or are you not Jewish? I was a young refugee of Polish origin, a foreigner being sheltered by a Protestant community. One couple said about their protectors, they really did something. They risked their lives. They hid us in their farms. They knew the police were near. 
They said we were relatives, cousins. They put themselves in danger, taking every risk. They were really very kind. They're like family. We feel at home there. They were really fantastic. They risked their lives. La Chambon became a village of children. In 1938, a new school was built. 18 children showed up. In 1943, 350 boys and girls went to school there. These were poor families who opened up their hearts and homes to these refugees. An English teacher was living there during the occupation. She explained, it meant sharing their daily bread. It meant giving food that could have otherwise been sold. They lived very near to the bone. What is particularly striking about this documentary, however, is the way that the residents of the village recounted that time. They described it with such humility. It was just so ordinary, so common. Rather sheepishly, one couple remembered, uh, we never asked for explanations. Nobody asked anything. When people came, if we could be of help, and their voice trailed off, Pierre Savage then asked, but you were taking risks and sheltering Jews? At first, not so much, but toward the end, it did start becoming dangerous. But you kept them anyway? Oh, yes. Why? I don't know. We were used to it. They were used to it? Somehow that kind of regard for others, that kind of respect for the integrity of other human beings, that kind of affirmation of the profound value of human life had been imprinted. That kind of love had been imprinted on their spiritual DNA. One woman who altered, offered shelter was interviewed. She said, we managed somehow. We gave up our bed when nothing was left, when there was no choice. I simply helped because they needed to be helped. The bells of her church began to ring in the distance, and as she made her way to worship, she added, what happened had a lot to do with people still believing in something. The Bible says to feed the hungry, to feed the sick. It's a normal thing to do. Do you know what's written over the entryway of that Huguenot church in La Chambon? Love one another. In our American society, we have reduced love to a holiday in February. And when we think of love, we automatically associate it with romantic love. I love my wife, I love my children. That's not so romantic, but it's familial love. But Christian love is different. Christian love is not built, built on affinity or how I feel about you, what I think about you. Christian love is built on God's example in Jesus Christ who accepts us as we are, who affirms our inherent dignity and yet embraces us. That is love. In many ways, worship is a school. And we come here to learn to love to learn to respect one another. We come here to learn again and again that God's love is vast. 
and includes all kinds of people from all kinds of places, especially those on the outside, especially those on the margins, especially those who have been oppressed and put down and hated and despised. We come here to learn the practice of love. And then we go out into the world to live that love. My friends, Jesus is Lord. And because he is Lord, love really can be. Even in the most extreme of situations, love really can be the normal thing to do. Amen.